You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this is, is The Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour, RA's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. I'm Martha, producer of The Hour, here to guide you through this month's episode. On the show this month, Zakia Sewell meets members of JFLAG, a human rights and social justice organisation that supports Jamaica's LGBT community to discuss their relationship to the country's dancehall scene. One of the things that I love about queer dancehall spaces is how absolutely revolutionary they are. It's revolutionary to see a male body and a male identified body twerk and whine it destroys these notions of gender that dancehall heavily constructs in its own curious way, but then allows for people to do whatever they want with it. And Carlos Hawthorne reports from Dusseldorf at the closing party for the influential music venue Salon des Amateurs, an incubator for DJs and artists like Vladimir Ivkovic, Toulouse Lotrax and Lena Willikens. I'm Lena Willikens and I was born at Salon des Amateurs as a DJ. The name Salon des Amateurs says it all. It was a place where there was no expectation that you have to be a DJ in order to play records there. That gave me, as a total beginner, gave me the freedom to organize parties there. First to Berlin, where we captured a conversation between Japanese percussionist and composer Midori Takada and Parisian musician La Fonda, who recently collaborated on their project Lorena Bleu. Hi, Midori-san. Hi. <laughs> Hi, yes. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Berlin. Thank you. We have seen each other since the mm. record one time very quickly, but yeah, um, yes. it's kind of the first time we actually have time mm. since the mm. record. How was it for you to work on this together? The recorded work that I know from you, mm. you didn't work with vocalists. I put the melody line, yes. y- your part. Yes. I played by pianic. Mm-hmm. 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 So <laughs> but you didn't notice that that's I, your part. So <laughs> I know there was like this massive uh, misunderstanding. No, 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 no. I received a file from you with two different um, versions of the song. Mm. One had a beautiful melody with mm. the piani- mm. pianica. 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 Mm. Uh, and another one was um, without that line. And so I was listening to both. Of course, the the one with the melody was so beautiful, but I didn't understand that it was, mm. in fact, the part that you wanted me mm. to sing. I thought, ah, okay, the part with the pianica doesn't have any room for me to sing. So I started singing on the other version, the empty version. Mm, yeah. And then I got to Japan yeah. and I played you the song and you said... Uh, okay, that's really good, but what about the thing that you're supposed to be right singing? And I was like, oh. So then it became, I think that the, the, it's, I really enjoyed the process of working together because also it came of an accident, no? Yeah, uh, yeah. You had scripted everything and then mm. at the end it was a happy accident because mm. I did something. Mm. Yes, uh, yes, it's a very uh, miracle. It's kind of a miracle. Like oh, yeah. I created a song 
and then you were like, okay, that's good, but let's add my part. And then the way that your part and my part married to mm. each other yeah. was kind of like a miracle because yeah, yeah. they kind of became call and response, but uh, you didn't decide that and I didn't decide that. It just mm. happened. Mm. I'm sorry, I, I didn't know your name uh-huh. in Japan, uh-huh. so uh, I didn't have any information uh-huh. about you. I, mm. I get your a promotion video mm-hmm. mm. I didn't know your range of voice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. everything was a mystery I, I didn't a mystery <laughs> she's very mysterious <laughs> I wrote um, composed your melody line mm-hmm. that the line is a very important melody mm-hmm. for me so mm-hmm. many years oh, I really? I tried to put in the percussion ensemble. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. Or I played by myself and uh, played with Evelyn Graney, percussionist of England. Ah, oh, I've, yeah. of course. Oh my God, I'm obsessed with her. She's yeah. amazing. She's deaf, no? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, she's amazing. Yeah. So we played together. Yes, beautiful. It wasn't my image uh-huh. a little bit. I need voice uh-huh. not instrument mm-hmm. then i wrote melody you for you mm. but uh, you add more rich improvisation on it so yeah, I, mean, I wrote a song yeah mm, mm. that the melody line is uh, in- increasing increasing mm. first of all i was really nervous because i didn't know it was supposed to be my line i didn't work on it or and it's quite complex for me at least uh-huh. it felt remember it it was quite um, uh, yeah <laughs> counterintuitive for me <laughs> the, 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 the 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 rhythm of the, the track mm. itself is, is mm. quite uh, complex the time signature Every time you think that you get a groove, it takes out the carpet, yeah. you know, underneath your <laughs> your feet. Uh, yeah, as soon as I would start g- getting comfortable rhythmically, like ah, okay, I understand. I would um, get proven that I didn't understand. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. A, a African structure uh-huh. I used. From so, where? From from, uh, from uh, our Ebe tribe uh-huh. uh, of. Uh, they live uh, around the Ghana or very small culture. Uh-huh. Music is very, very deep, especially rhythm construction mm-hmm. is very, very, very amazing and complicated. Mm-hmm. Mm. But it's interesting because the nature of the melody, mm-hmm. the affect mm-hmm. of the melody is mm-hmm. so romantic. It's yeah. so like French nineteenth yeah. century yeah, yeah, or beginning yeah. of the century. It's, it's like sati it's, or it's no? not not African. It's not African at all. <laughs> but the, the 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 my feeling. <laughs> yeah, my feeling too for sure. But the the, the way that it, it sits within the percussion mm. is not Western. So not rhythmically it's not Western. No, mm, uh, the affect of yeah. it is, is very But mm. melody is melody is very yeah. like uh, mid century. Exactly. <laughs> yeah yeah for sure. When you were like, Okay, so now you're gonna sing this part <laughs> and I was like, Okay <laughs> and I was really nervous because I was like, Ah, it's so complicated. <laughs> You yeah. know, I loved it, but uh, it w- it's one thing to, to love something and uh, to, to perform it was something else. But I feel like the way that I engage with vo- vocals in general in my music uh, uh. is such a personal process. 
For me, I, I write my lyrics alone, I write my melody alone. And it was such a pleasurable experience for me to be the interpreter of oh, your yeah, melody. I've never, yeah. I've never sang someone else's melody in my life. Uh-huh. Never. Usually, I, yeah, usually I try things, then I go back, I record, then I listen, and mm. then I structure. Ah, oh, yes. I don't, I'm, I, you know, I'm really terrified of improvising. Oh, I'm oh, really scared. Yeah, I think it's one mm. of the scariest okay. things. You construct. I don't feel that kind of freedom yet. Mm. Um, and I think that uh, also, in a way, I think that studying classical music... Uh, me too. <laughs> It, it really yes. damages. It yeah. really da it's really damaging. You too. No? Yeah, I'm da I'm damaged from it for sure, for sure. Uh, yeah. It's a difference because you recorded first one as you like. Yes. After that. Yes. It's the way you like. So <laughs> maybe it was hard for you. I mean, it, w it was hard because uh, again the, the the thing that you wrote was counterintuitive to me but it was very pleasurable because i really enjoyed being directed yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not improvisation you had oh, you yeah. you wrote a score yeah. and you made me sing it After. so the conducting experience the, yeah. to have you be in the room with me mm. and conducting my voice physically yeah. leading me and uh, yeah Now, yeah, go, yeah, <laughs> conduct. Yeah, I've never yeah. had that experience vocally because you know, I played the flute. Did I tell you that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I played classical music for oh, like yeah. maybe 12 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't really enjoy that. I know that you, you, you also started with classical music, no? Yes, yeah, and I you did, didn't I enjoy had it either. <laughs> and you were playing percussion since the beginning, yes, a okay. percussion concert with okay. the orchestra, yeah. But suddenly I changed. You changed. Yeah. What made you not pursue changed that? Yeah. Style. Yeah. I met uh, African music mm -hmm. and minimal music. Mm -hmm. When I layer things, which I do a lot. It has to do with when I write music, I feel bigger than what I can contain. In a way, layering for me is kind of like a way to create space inside of me or make make mm. myself mm. bigger or more spacious mm. because the, the relationship that I have with music is not a, a first-person relationship. Oh. It's not... Um, you know, kind of like a diary uh, about my feelings yeah. or my emotions or mm. my love story or whatever that is. I don't really write like this as mm -hmm. a first-person experience. I think that the way that I like to make music is when I use the first person, when I mm. use I, it's always bigger mm. than me and it's always... It starts from inside, but it's also many eyes. The layering, in a way, I think it helps me to, to express that the point of view is not the point of view of one person. Mm. or Different character. Yeah. yeah. I feel that I oh. carry the voice of many. Thanks to Midori and Lafonda for bringing us into their conversation. They'll perform together at the Barbican Centre on the 7th of April. 
Carlos Hawthorne spent some time in Dusseldorf late last year to witness the three-day closing party of Salon des Amateurs, a nightclub which has been forced to close in order to repair some serious water damage. You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. Dusseldorf, a city famous for beer, craftwork and its bustling art scene. Tucked away in a corner of Kunsthalle, one of the city's main galleries, is Salon des Amateurs, a former café-turned-nightclub that today ranks among Europe's best. Opened in 2004, it's known for its daring anything-goes music policy. Most nights swing freely through tempos, moods and genres. At Salon, weird records are given pride of place. This free-spirited ethos has nurtured a number of artists over the years, among them globe-trotting stars like Lena Vilikens, Vladimir Ivkovich and Jan Schulter. These three, plus a dozen or so others, returned to Salon in November to perform at the club's three-day closing party. The closure wasn't permanent. Salon is old and following some severe water damage in January 2017, in bad need of a refurb. But even so, the blowout suggested there was more to the situation than met the eye. On Saturday, November 3rd, I took a train from Berlin to Dusseldorf, arriving at Salon just before doors opened for the second time that weekend. Over the course of the night, in between spells on the heaving dance floor, I pulled several of the club's key players to one side in an attempt to find out more about the story behind the closure. In the next 20 minutes, you'll hear the voices of resident DJ Arne Bunez, aka Rearview Radio, co-founder Detlef Weinrich, aka Toulouse Lotrax, Jan Schulter, Lena Villikens and Ralph Brengens, a long-time regular and owner of the local record store Hitsville. And there's al- already a queue at like 9.30. Here's Arne Bunez, who runs the Theme for Great Cities label and has been a resident at Salon for around 10 years. After trying and failing to find a quiet spot inside the club, we settled on the terrace outside. A few feet away, a large queue was already forming, though doors wouldn't open for another 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, this weekend is like the last weekend the Salon is uh, open um, until further notice because it uh, has some reparation be done and this will at least like like half a year or like maybe even July. There was water damage early last year, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess this is related to what happened then? They put everything dry in the last months and they somehow managed it like to keep it open while doing that. But now like um, they have some agreement with the city of Dusseldorf, uh, which owns the place to do like proper reparations and like uh, a big point is also like um, the city of Dusseldorf or the museum um, wants uh, um, cafe back the state the salon is in right now doesn't fit expectations on a museum cafe okay interesting so they want it to be a cafe during the day but they're still going to allow salon to happen at night on weekends like we function as a club and doing more like cultural things under the week like in the evenings how do you think that will affect salon i don't know for sure but maybe um it will go back to um just be open like up to like maybe four or something like that and that left uh toulouse lotrex put it uh, in a recent interview like um to get a little bit of uh, hysteric yeah like those super long nights like back to um, a little bit more like unhysteric okay so you think it might kind of yeah just kind of limit the extent to which parties can open and okay so it might kind of lose a little magic or something yeah no 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 I, I, I wouldn't say that maybe heighten up the quality again or be like maybe a little bit be more mature well you mentioned there was a night last night there was an older crowd 
but more recently a younger crowd has started coming to Salon. Yeah, like in the in the last two years or like three years, like yeah, you could recognize like um, that with like um, more younger residents start to um, throw parties or like becoming residents because they are be do doing regular evenings. Also, the crowd got younger and um, discovered the place. For themselves and that's important for the music and to keep the crowd fresh and to keep the place yeah yeah totally totally and i mean are there any other places in dusseldorf to hear music like this there is one other club but it's more like focusing on on techno and the music policy here is is kind of as eclectic and wild as ever yeah there's no no one telling you like what to play or what not like Totally not. The younger younger guys, the Feather Boys, Aki and Rasputin, they came into the club as guests and they saw what could be done and they are like super all like music enthusiasts and, and they all wanted the difference to like just being a house club or what. Yeah, sure. So um, your set tonight, what time does it start? Uh, my set is starting at one. Okay, so what are you anticipating in terms of where you're going to start? What are you anticipating the mood being around one? Tonight will be like super crowded instantly. We're talking right now, there's already a queue. Yeah, I guess lots of people are coming here this weekend because they won't have a chance to, to come for another few months. Yeah. We have your radio. Willkommen! Das ist anscheinend noch nicht laut genug, glaube ich. Salon is different from other clubs, both musically and otherwise. For the first 20 minutes on Saturday, as people in winter coats poured through the door, a friendly dog surveyed the scene from a spot on the couch. Later, a man sat sketching with a pencil and pad. At one point, I heard someone say to a guy collecting empty glasses, don't work too hard. Within a couple of hours, the place was packed with people of all ages. Those who couldn't find a spot on the dance floor stood on the windowsill or on benches along the walls. Jackets lay stuffed behind couches. The atmosphere was heady and sweaty, powered by a soundtrack that was constantly morphing, from jangly guitar music and 80s hip-hop to oddball chuggers and Italo disco. My favourite set was by Philip Jondo, who lent hard on bassy sounds like reggaeton and instrumental grime. When I finally left the club at around 4.30am, people were still queuing to get in. You're about to hear the voice of longtime regular and local record store owner Ralph Brengans, who I stumbled across on the night completely by accident. I initially tapped him on the shoulder thinking he was Detlef Vinery, but then we got chatting. So how regularly have you been coming to Salon over the past 10 years? Ha, uh, two or three times uh, a month. Wow, okay, really regularly? Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> what does it mean to you, this place? It's an open place, you can do what you want and, um, yeah, meet friends here, okay, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, um, it's a bit family, family here. Yeah. So obviously the club is closing, or the venue is closing for a period. How do you feel about that? I feel sad, but um, there's no other chains. Everything is broken there, and it's the toilet. So we need a break. After a break, maybe it's a good start again. Yeah, what will you do for the next five or six months without a salon? I don't know. Um, I hope I will be surprised. Will you still be coming here for the next 10 years, you think? <laughs> don't know. So um, maybe, maybe we met up again here in uh, six months. Or we hope the best. 
when I found the real Detlef Feinrich, he was snaking through the crowd on the way for a cigarette. He wasn't playing until Sunday night, but he decided to come down for moral support. Yes, I'm uh, Detlef Weinrich, so also to lose low tracks. And uh, I was starting the place with uh, two other guys, Aaron Metzion and uh, Stefano Brivio in 2004. So I'm one of the owners and members of the salon. I mean, this weekend is really based on, uh, on uh, more the, the residents from Dusseldorf, you know. I mean, it's really hard to... Uh, to stop because uh, of course there's so many other people you could invite and all the people from Amsterdam like Taco and it's endless you know but you have to make a kind of decision so and I gave it up to be honest to Arne from Films for Great Cities to make the organization because I'm in a way also too busy and maybe uh, also maybe a bit too, too close to the salon sure. emotional wise you know sure um, <clears throat> so yeah this is obviously a closing party I mean why is it having to close after so many years, the place is in a kind of a, a bad condi condition, and uh, especially the the city, which is, uh, of course, they're complaining. You know, what changed with the with the local local government in terms of the attitude towards salon? People are afraid about energies. You know, they like to talk about energies, and then it comes to the to the museum. If it's like a history, which uh, people can handle it uh, as a okay, this is a, a thing like we can make a kind of advertising, uh, uh, talking about the city, the history of the city, like Ratingerhof and everything. But if it's happening, people are afraid, you know. If it's dead and we can put it in the museum, people are really ready for it. And of course, this is ridiculous, but it's happening very often. What renovations exactly are you doing to the, to the space? Everything. Everything? Yeah. Really? I mean, the, it's a basic... Uh, well, everything the same, but uh, it's a new bar, just a new floor and uh, new toilets and everything. Okay, everything. And is that is that related to the water damage from last year? I mean, the water damage is uh, actually the whole house. I mean, uh, they didn't realize it, that, that uh, it was really a problem of the whole house, you know. How did it happen? People want to make things cheap, you know. You have to pay it sooner or later, you know. Does this closing party feel like a kind of end of a specific kind of era for Salon? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. I have no idea. I mean, uh, this is about being patient, you know. You have to wait sometimes yeah. and, it's, uh, and it's coming again, yeah. kind of energies. You know? Yeah, it's nice. You notice a real mixed crowd in there, like very young people and then 60-year-olds. Yeah, of, of course, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's nice. I mean, oh, that's great. a perfect idea about a, a social place, you know. It's important to be relevant. I mean, that's the point. I was due to speak with Jan Schulter on Saturday, but after performing live as Wolf Muller, he said he felt completely overwhelmed. We caught up the next day instead, just as Salon was reopening for the third and final night. My name is Jan Schulte. I am a resident DJ at the Salon des Amateurs since 2008. So this is also a 10 years celebration. This used to be my living room. Like I came four times the week when I had the chance. Wow, amazing. <laughs> what, so you, when you were playing and when you were not playing? Yeah, of course. I, since the moment I found out about this place, I came here as often as possible. Sometimes even alone to just hide myself behind the speakers. I would just end up listening all night and not being talked to. And the first time I DJed was after two years I came here. I had so shaky fingers that I couldn't even light up a cigarette. <laughs> amazing, and it still feels special playing here. For me it was really weird starting to travel 
as there's no space like this and everything I know I learned here. So everywhere else I went to, I was yeah, limiting myself in a different way. Not being as free as I was here at home, of course. Yeah, it sets the bar very high. Yeah, that's yeah. it. And um, That's interesting. It was interesting for me starting to travel, finding out it's actually nowhere as free as here. And does the vibe kind of, on a party like last night, does it feel similar to where it was when you first started going here? <laughs> no. <laughs> Yesterday it was in actually ending up by having shit tons of people that were here for the first time to like come here at least one time. And the first years it, it was still in this mix of being a bar that suddenly turned into a club without it being planned. So it could be like 25 people dancing or 200. For me and my friends it was just a total relief as I thought Club music is boring at the time because every other party was minimal techno here in the area. And then this space was, yeah, just super refreshing and always um, surprising. The club's obviously closing for a short period. Why is it closing? They found out that they have water below the floor and uh, so the city owns the building. They also wanted to go back to the original state which was chessboard, carpet floor and more cultural program. On the other side, I experienced a time where it was more cultural program. It was totally different. It was more art students here. Actually, it was full from Tuesday to Saturday. And these days, it's just, yeah, nobody's coming within the weeks anymore. I stopped doing the events I did within the weeks. I did like free jazz events or movies, like we shot special, special films. But um, yeah, let's see how it works out with being more cultural again as they just stopped it because nobody came anymore and this party scene overtook the place a bit. Okay, but generally you feel optimistic about the future? Of course. I come from this place and I will try to keep this alive. And um, I was a second generation Salon DJ. We have the third generation now. Man, this is like, for, for, for me it's super fascinating to see that it's actually possible to still have people following in the same like momentum which is happening at the moment. So that's going to keep on, of course. Nice one, Jan. Appreciate it. Lena Villikens' flight was delayed on Sunday afternoon, which meant we missed each other in Dusseldorf. A week or so later, she recorded some thoughts on the closing on her phone and sent them over. I'm Lena Villikens and I was born at Salon des Amateurs as a DJ. That's the place where I started DJing. In the very beginning I was a barkeeper and bouncer. Then I started to take more and more records with me while I was barkeeping and started to have a regular night organizing parties there. And after that I was in charge for several years with the programming of the Friday nights. Detlef Toulouse-Lautrex was doing the bookings for the Saturday. In the very beginning, it never intended to be a nightclub. So it was a cafe, a bar, a place where friends would gather and listen to music, but uh, not necessarily a nightclub. So the name Salon des Amateurs says it all. It was a place where there was no expectation that you have to be a DJ in order to play records there. That gave me, as a total beginner, gave me the freedom to, to organize parties there. In the early years of Salon, it could easily happen that Aaron Metzion, one of the founders with Detlef together, one of the founders of Salon, 
he would just uh, come with 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 a bunch of uh, his uh, Sandra records and play jazz, free jazz on a Saturday night for all all night long. So this was kind of um, normal, and no one questioned it. In the beginning, there was never the intention to have a good running business. I think this is quite important. It was more the luxury that we had a place where we could just hang and have a good time. Salon has to close because of uh, water damage and no one can really tell how, how big, how severe that damage is. So they, they have to remove walls, they will remove um, the floor and then after starting removing the floor they will see how severe the damage is. How Salon is located is also very important, it plays an important role. It's um, located in a museum, Kunsthalle and Kunstverein. Building itself is owned by the city, which makes it now not really easy for Salon des Amateurs to deal with all the renovation stuff and everything is like way more bureaucracy. That's why it also took so long from the moment we figured that there was this water damage till the action that it finally happens that the renovation is starting was for us a big relief when we knew okay finally now they will fix it um, it took so long because uh, yeah so many people had different opinions on what to do now and now it's kind of clear okay it will be closed for a while they will tear down some walls they will open the entire floor then they can tell how severe the damage is that's why we also have no clue when salon will open again but the concept of salon itself we will see how it will change it will change for sure for the landlord, which is the Kunsthalle, the museum, it's really important to have a cafe in the house. And this was a deal from the beginning. Salon can do whatever, but it has to be also a cafe where the staff from the museum can go, have meetings, can drink coffee and so on. Now, it might be that the concept when Salon reopens um, we'll focus more on that and less on the nightclub action. So we will just figure out that we all don't know and we just hope that we still will be able to have magic nights at Salon. But no one can say. So let's uh, keep fingers crossed and um, we will see what happens next. As you can tell, no one is too concerned for the future of Salon. Like most long-running venues, it's undergone numerous changes over the years. What started out as a cafe and hangout for local art school kids is now a revered nightclub with fans all over the world. In whatever form it reopens, it will remain just as dedicated to weird and excellent music of all varieties. Plus, with plans to start running a wider cultural programme, it may evolve into a hub for other art forms. However frustrating some of the council's views are, 
adapting to change comes with the territory. It may be the end of an era at Salon, but it's also the start of a new one. Despite the huge risks in being visibly queer in Jamaica, a vibrant and growing LGBT community were able to hold pride celebrations last year. JFLAG is an organisation supporting the community. Zakia Sewell went out to meet some of their members. Jamaica is an island rich with musical cultures, but it's always been a place of extremes. Extreme beauty, extreme violence, extreme creativity and extreme prejudice, especially when it comes to the LGBTQ community. The small island was once named the most homophobic place on earth, and while there have been some improvements over the years, homophobia still infiltrates Jamaican politics, religion, social life and music, most notoriously in the country's most beloved genre, dancehall. Dancehall's been under scrutiny in recent years for its intensely homophobic lyrics, which often incite violence against the LGBTQ community. But there's a growing number of young queer Jamaican activists who refuse to turn their backs on dancehall. Instead, they're reclaiming it for their own purposes, creating safe spaces for their community to express themselves to this music, which, despite its problems, is an important marker of their Jamaicanness. This year, a well-known dancehall artist, De Angel, did the headline performance at Jamaican Pride, a major landmark of increasing acceptance. I caught up with Javion Nelson, Glenroy Murray and Suelle Anglin from JFLAG, a Jamaican pro-LGBTQ human rights organisation who are spearheading this movement. I'm playing with you! I'm Javion Nelson, the executive director at JFLAG. I'm Glenroy Murray, the advisor to JFLAG. And I'm Sewell Anglin, Associate Director of Marketing, Communications and Engagement. Could you just sort of start off by telling me a little bit about what JFLAG does as an organisation? So JFLAG is a human rights and social justice organisation which advocates for the rights, livelihood and well-being of LGBT people. And we've been operating since December 1998 when we were launched. So this year we celebrate 20 wonderful years of advocacy and activism in Jamaica for the LGBT community. And we organise our work around five key areas around public tolerance, providing services to the LGBT community, organisational sustainability, policy and legal reform and community engagement and mobilization. Could you set the scene for me a little bit and just describe you know what what it means what it feels what the experience is of the LGBTQ community in Jamaica in 2018? In 2018 um, the experiences are nuanced and diverse. Um, I start by acknowledging that there's still a lot of problems that the community faces. Um, we still get reports of violence, harassment and discrimination in Jamaica um, but a lot of those experiences are complicated by issues related to class as well as socioeconomic background and access to education. So people, the more educated you are and the more well off you are per se, is the less likely you are to ex have certain experiences of um, homophobia. And that doesn't say that if you're rich or if you're upper class you don't experience homophobia, it's just that the ways in which you experience it are different and more subtle and more institutionalized. But at the same time, in 2018, there are many spaces for um, people to be them be their true selves and be able to have you know safe spaces and to interact and there are differing levels of tolerance and acceptance in different spaces in Jamaica. I know that in London at the moment there's a real kind of 
burst of LGBTQ people of colour who are creating spaces where they can dance and you know listen to music and celebrate and come together and that has been a really kind of important um, phenomenon that's been happening in the last few years. Do you have similar occurrences in, whereabouts are you based? We, we're based in Kingston, yes. Um, we have a thriving LGBT community in Kingston especially. So there are lots of events on a regular basis. On weekends you sometimes have two or three events that are happening of which dancehall music is a key feature. Um, and we have like our pride celebrations each year and lots of other events organized by JFLAG, other LGBT organizations that provide spaces for people to come together to fellowship, to um, meet each other and to just have some fun in different ways. And what kind of music, you touched on dance, but what kind of music will be played at those sorts of, in those spaces? While we play dance hall, there is a lot of soca music, we love soca music. Um, but you'll get a mixture of mostly dance hall and soca with a little bit of um, hip hop and pop. But in a lot of these spaces, what you'll hear, it goes from soca music to dance hall. I know that sometimes when people talk about dance hall, they seem to like fixate on the homophobia, but it's, there's no doubt it's there in a lot of the lyrics. So how do you negotiate that with the work that you're doing at JFLAG? Um, and you know, what is a kind of very anti-LGBTQ anti sentiment expressed in, in the music? The work at JFLAG actually is about acknowledging that um, as LGBT Jamaicans, we're Jamaicans and we have uniquely Jamaican experiences and it's about demonstrating to the wider public that nexus of queerness and Jamaicanness. And dancehall is a raw representation of Jamaican realities, norms and values. And for us, it's looking at the reality of how queer Jamaicans more or less enjoy dancehall, coalesce around dancehall and, and fellowship around dancehall. And so for us, it's acknowledging the problems within dancehall and the way we communicate and talk about the issues but not treating dancehall as if it's a monolithic genre and acknowledging the differences and nuances in dancehall and that saying one thing doesn't necessarily mean that this is what an artist truly believes and understand that dancehall is a performative space and it performs strong views and sometimes aggressive views about Jamaican culture but it doesn't mean therefore that Jamaican culture is fixed in time. And I think, I mean, it's it's art, so you create your own, own interpretations of it. And I always like to look back at a chapter in one of my friend's um, thesis that he wrote about the gay party scene in Jamaica. And it was one of his first ever parties in Jamaica. And he described how shocked he was when he stepped into the space and heard some of the same songs that he were ta he was taught not to like, not to appreciate, not to listen to, and just how queer bodies were gyrating to that kind of music and how people were using it to also sort of protest back at some of the things that people were saying about LGBT people. And for him, that was a real profound experience and he began to fall back in love again with his country. I remember I had a conversation with a group of female promoters. I asked the same question, you know, how do they enjoy uh, the different spaces with, you know, um, a lot of these lyrics that are homophobic. One of the things that they pointed out to me was that when we're in these spaces, we listen to this music and we use it to almost to mock these artists and say, you know, oh, you're trying in a way to make us feel, you know, like bad or you're making us feel, you know, ashamed of who we are. But we're using this to let you know that it's not affecting us and we're going to come into the space. And when you 
you played um, in a way as to hurt us, we're going to let you know that we're not hurt by it. We're just going to dance along. We're going to enjoy ourselves and we're going to leave the space and then we go back home to our girlfriends or, you know, to our boyfriends. And that is it. So um, I guess it's very important to acknowledge, just like Glenoy said, about the performance mm -hmm. of dancehall. And so you go into a space and you perform what is required but then when you leave that space that performance is done and you go back to your lives um, and you move on yeah i think one of the things that i love about queer dancehall spaces is how absolutely revolutionary they are it's revolutionary to see a male body and a male identified body twerk and whine one minute and then the next minute mm. jenna bounce to um, popular dance songs and lebe lebe and do all of those dance moves and it destroys these notions of gender that dancehall heavily constructs in its own curious way mm -hmm. but then allows for people to do whatever they want with it and so I think that's revolutionary and that's been my best takeaway just mm -hmm. seeing how in many ways it liberates queer people from strictures of gender that it itself creates and perpetuates. Sounds incredibly empowering. There's a difference to like sort of listening to this music and just absorbing negative messages and internalizing them, and then to actually take hold of that and to make it your own. I think is an incredibly, you know, incredibly brave and powerful. Are there any particular artists that you kind of can rely on not to have those sorts of messages, homophobic messages, in their work, or, or, or is it a case of whether they do or whether they don't, we're going to listen to it and enjoy it regardless? Um, I don't think. We can say that we can rely on them not to. Um, I think there are a lot of dancehall artists that tend to not go in that direction. Um, and so if you look at a lot of the female or maybe like in that direction, you realize that their songs are not really down the part of, you know, singing about homophobia, but it's about, you know, maybe just like it looks and, you know, like being sexy and that sort of thing. Um, and I also think that just the ways in which homophobia is being performed in dancehall has changed a lot. So if you look at um, the lyrics of, you know, dancehall songs, maybe like the 90s, early 2000 versus now, um, it is still there, but it's a lot more softened or mm -hmm. in... Um, I'm trying to find a word to say it's not yet yes. right so it's no longer very explicit and raw and in your face but it's more in very subtle ways that you have to know about the language and understand the context and the culture to really understand that that's what they're saying so it is still there but I think it's very important to give credit to the ways in which they're doing it now so it's not so much in your face and out there but because of the performance-ness that you have to do in dancehall you know to be taken seriously as a dancehall artist that has to be there so I think um, we must acknowledge the ways in which they're trying to navigate these kind of um, ways as well but I don't think we can say we rely on any artist in particular but I think they are trying in their own ways um, to kind of navigate the spaces different I think dance I'm um, just added that dancehall grows with Jamaica and I think as a result of that, you see that softening that Suel talks about of a move away from hardcore sometimes and excessively violent homophobia to what I consider now a more just a heteronormative mm -hmm. approach to dance. All you're just talking up, talking as if there are only heterosexual people in the dance, um, which is a significant shift. I'm, I'm not saying that there aren't species yeah. of homophobia there are and for you to boss in the dance hall there are certain things you have to do mm -hmm. um you have to have enough girl 
you have to declare say you're a fish and you have to say you're a bad man. Um, and if you're a woman, you have to sing say you pussy good and you have to sing say you know for all your man and you're afraid of a girl. But once you've established that and, and I've gotten enough support from a hardcore dancehall base, you can, you know, jump off into many different spaces. So understanding that the yeah, artists have to do this and then understanding that as Jamaica's culture moves forward, we can talk about things in new and different yeah. ways and dance will be at the forefront in talking about those things. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think also what is important is to, as our culture goes beyond, uh, you know, um, just uh, the little borders of Jamaica and you're realizing that a lot of these artists are now going into different parts of Europe and, you know, all over the world, I think what they're also realizing is that their fan base is now growing. And so they also, in like I said, their only to ways be mindful, you know, of the messages that they're sending out. Um, so even if they're not saying, you know, yes, you know, we love whatever, you'll find that they'll tend to answer certain questions in a very politically correct way. Um, I know like from time to time, you know, they'll put up, you know, like little messages like, you know, um, I love all my fans, you know, I respect all my fans sort of messaging. So I think that is also important for us to acknowledge when we talk about the two spaces. Could you tell me a little bit about Pride this year? So you had a dancehall artist, Dangel, is that, is that her name? Yeah, Doesn't sound quite right in an English accent. <laughs> Dangel. So very, I think maybe like a week before Pride, um, I, I was having a conversation with JV and I said, what if we were to, you know, go out there, you know, ask, um, you know, a couple of artists to come to Pride? I wonder what the reception would be like. And I remember, um, I just, I was just there in the office and I said, you know, well, let me just try because, you know, like the most I can say is no. Um, and so I was there sending out, I just sent out emails to as many people as I could. Um, and we got a lot of responses very quickly, which was very surprising for me. Um, a lot of people were saying, you oh, know, this is something that's very interesting to us, but, you know, it's very late down, it's very close, and, you know, we're already booked out for this time. You know, this artist is not available. Um, but we got a response from the Angels Management and J Jada Kingdom's management um, that, you know, you know, yes, we're interested in something like this, and I was very sure to say, you know, this is Pride, and just in case you don't know what Pride is, <laughs> You know, um, you know, it's a space with LGBT people and all that. And they were very excited. They were like, yes, you know, I'm totally on board. You know, if you want me to do any sort of, you know, like videos to promote Pride, let me know which they did. So it all happened very quickly. I didn't think I even processed what was happening until I think at the event when I saw her, you know, on stage and she came and people were just so like, oh my God, the angel was so excited. And, you know, she was in the crowd with them. And she was talking and, you know, people were on the stage just getting on bad. And she was just there with the flags and she was waving. And she was like, I love my fans. I'm a lover now. I know, can't make nobody turn off it though. Living a life. And and it was just like you saw on people's faces that they couldn't believe that this was happening one. And just to feel like I no longer had to separate my identity. So I didn't have to be straight acting here in a dancehall space. And I didn't have to be this over here. I could literally be in the middle, being my authentic self. And I think that was very important for them to experience. As Jamaicans, as young people growing up, that we love our dancehall and we love the vibes cut and we love the dash out. And to be able to experience that in your home country, not overseas where the culture is different and the context is different, but 
to be able to get that on Jamaican soil, in your language, in your culture, in the rawness of who we are as Jamaicans, I think it was absolutely beautiful. Did you have any feedback from the artists about their experience and what they felt being there? Oh yes, um, I spoke to Angel. I remember when she when she ended her performance. I know she was saying she was so happy that she did it because you know she was a bit, um, you know, like afraid at first, and she was saying she was so happy that you know she went ahead and she stood her ground and said yes, this is something that she's going to do because you know she knows she has a lot of fans and she loves her fans and she wants them to know that she is here with them. I know she supports them, um, and she was there talking to like. She was just there talking to people like, you know, she was just one of us sort of thing. Um, you know, she was taking photos and like a lot of people were just talking to her and saying, you know, I can't believe you're at Pride. And she was like, yes. And she was doing like some little videos for other people. Um, I remember that there was a couple of things from Canada that was there. I know she did a video with them and she was saying, happy Pride, Jamaica. And, you know, I'm here and big up who in Canada sort of thing. But... Um, the feedback that I got from both of them was that they were very happy to do it and they were open to doing something like this again if we ever wanted to engage them. So I guess you can look out next year who we'll have <laughs> for Pride. But yeah, it was very exciting. And for people in the crowd, it's a kind of acceptance, isn't it? It's like, okay, right, these they're here and they, they accept us and that must be a kind of incredible feeling. I remember she called up a couple of them on stage oh, to, yeah, to dance. Yeah. She called up her Sheikah and I think that that was the moment for me that I said, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. she was doing it right. Because I think any dancehall artist could have just, if an artist were to come, could have just come and done a very basic mm -hmm. performance mm -hmm. of just did, doing your song, have the crowd cheer and leave. She decidedly t tailored her messaging to say, you know, people were saying this, but I love you guys, live your life. Um on the money come full you know the kind of narratives that we as Jamaicans will love mm -hmm. and she saw someone in the crowd and said you come here and she called her up and there was a blast and then other people just kind of fed off of that energy and mm -hmm. she went up went on the stage and then she came down and interacted with the crowd mm -hmm. I mean it was just so beautiful I love seeing when we don't have to prod people to do mm -hmm. great things and we didn't have to prod her at all and I think it just demonstrated the untapped possibility of mm -hmm. the dancehall space to be more for the community and to acknowledge that the community, the LGBT community, is a space where dancehall thrives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think, I mean, I wasn't there because I had something else, but I was watching online and I cried because it was really so phenomenal and touching. And as Sue was talking just now, I remembered how the process of selection of the people who we would actually message came about and why Angel was one of the people we, we talked about. And we were talking about her, you know, her song and so and all that kind of thing. And it was exactly as we said it would play out and I think that was really touching you know she yeah. bringing them up and how the girls and guys and everybody just carried on when they heard all the songs and the crowd favorites and it was I think really really phenomenal I think one of the things too is that you know she got a, f a little some backlash online and she was very busy on her Instagram page for example constantly responding to people telling them that she's booked and busy and it's not because she doesn't have business why she's chosen to do this it's that she really believes in equal quality and that she loves everyone which I think was really really good because she could have ignored those she could have changed her mind she could have just done what everybody else would have probably do. It's interesting because you know you kind of mentioned that as people working in human rights that you don't really have the conversation about music 
that much but you know music is so integral to our sense of who we are and our identity and it might just seem a matter of choosing genres but as you said you know if you were to say oh right you know we're gonna we're gonna listen to rock music or we're gonna listen to some European music instead then you're almost kind of saying well we we let go of our Jamaicanness mm -hmm. uh, for the sake of our queerness and that's not a decision that you should have to make so it's incredibly important I mean are there other genres that kind of come at you mentioned soca is there are there the same issues with other genres or is it kind of specifically dancehall? Uh, well, with soca, it's a much more liberating space um, because I think soca's themes tend to be around fun and joy, expression and all of that. And so the queer community actually finds soca as a great space for representation mm -hmm. and visibility. And really, they flock to soca spaces and they're very, they're usually very opening. And I have to say kudos to a lot of the um, the promoters. They've really grown. Um, not that they were like terrible at the start, but they've really grown in their acceptance of the community and how they've, you know, provided space to the community. Because I've been, I went to a couple of soca parties this year and trust me, Sometimes it was like, where am I? You know, it was just, it was amazing just to see how people are just able to be themselves. I think what's great about Soka is that it allows both, you know, the wider society to be, to recognize that they can um, share space with the LGBT community, and it's fine. I remember at one of the parties I was at, me and my friends we were just dancing and whining and twerking, and a girl just came beside us and said. You're doing it great. Oh my gosh! I wish I could dance like you. And I feel, and I see that a lot in those spaces. And I think it's so beautiful to see that possibility. And soca does create that kind of space for a lot of people, especially during the carnival season. Yeah, we we had a big freedom for pride in. 2017? 2017. Um, I know she. Uh, he has a different flavor. I think it's more like that bounce hip hop. Um, sort of mixture. I remember when we first announced that Big Frida was going to be at Pride, people were like, Big Frida, Big Frida? Or is this like, is this another Big Frida? Like, which one of Big Frida is this? And we got a very good reception, not just from the LGBT community, but from just people in general. They were like, oh my God, like, Pride, you know, has grown this big where you're having a big artist like, you know, a Big Frida that's on a song with a Beyonce and a Drake to, you know, be at Pride in Jamaica happening. And I remember when he came um, and after he performed at the breakfast party, uh, he did a video and he was like, if I'd known that the vibe and energy at Jamaica Pride was this amazing, I would have been coming to Jamaica from whenever. And so it's not really just about dancehall because there is homophobia in other genres of music. If you listen hardcore hip hop uh, and rap, you will see it there. For me, I think it's about each year as Pride goes to kind of bring in different genres of music that people here in Jamaica enjoy and people who have left Jamaica for whatever reason, I don't know, in the diaspora to kind of bring everybody together and to kind of share that space where you can come and enjoy all the different genres of music that you love. So we would definitely love to have, you know, a big name in Soka come to Pride one year. Um, I, you know, have that to kind of, like I said, have that space where we can all come and share our different identities and exist. And I think, I mean, just to add to that, when you talk about the diaspora, my strong view is that it creates a sort of healing for a lot of people who had to interact with dancehall in a way that they felt they couldn't. Career dancehall spaces provide us an opportunity to re-engage a lot of the music that we understood as being one way and that we could only receive them a particular way and 
and being in that dancer space allows us to work through a lot of that sometimes trauma that we have and negative experiences and 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 learn to to relive it in a different way that Honestly, you can only get in Jamaica. You can only experience dancehall a particular way, um, it, and I'm gonna say it's the most authentic way in Jamaica. And it's very powerful to have somebody who may have had terrible experiences in Jamaica to be able to come back there in a dancehall space and renegotiate those experiences and develop a new appreciation for it. And I think that's one of the great um, things about what queer dancehall spaces generally, but also Pride does for the diaspora. There are these queer spaces, queer raves in, in Jamaica, in Kingston. Could you describe some of them? Are there any specific ones? Where, they, where do they tend to be held? Are they in clubs? Are they more DIY? Just a sense of what that scene actually looks and feels like. It's varied, so you'll have them happening in different spaces. I remember we were a part of um, a own robin in the community, and what a own robin is, is like it's a group of people that come together, and you know, you have an event, all of us go and support your event, my event, all of us come to support my event, and so we were in it as an organization. Um, and I remember there was one in particular that was happening on Spanish Town Road, and if you know about Jamaica and Spanish Town Road, you know that that is a place that it has nothing queer or nothing LGBT because that in itself is a very violent area. And they were having a own robbing there. And I was like, you know, maybe this is not the one for me to go to, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, we won't be able to come to this one. And I remember when they sent me the videos on Spanish Town Road. And if you saw the community on Spanish Town Road, on their head tops, on the walls, on tabletops and they were just carrying on and I remember I sent it to Javen and I said have you seen what is happening on Spanish Town Road and I think that speaks a lot about the envelope that has been pushed um, in the community and about creating spaces not just in very urban areas you know like you know Kingston or maybe like um, a new Kingston that is you know that you can say maybe this is a safe uptown space, but about pushing the envelope and going into these inner city areas and creating spaces for the community to participate and to be visible and to be able to live and you know negotiate your experiences there. And I think we have to give a lot, and I say it all the time that a lot of the entertainment and I guess you can say like visibility in the community that has been happening maybe the last five years or so, we have to give it to. Yeah, it's a group of ladies, a group of women um, that are really pushing the envelope. And when I tell you it's been pushed, it's been pushed. Um, and so there are different places all over Kingston in rural areas that they're really having these events. Um, yeah, so it happens all over and it takes all different shapes and forms. You have some of them that is really just like street, street dance level where it's just out on the roadside and, you know, you just come dance and drink. And there are others that will be in a club setting, bar setting, where you come in and there's a space inside that you are. But it really is just happening everywhere and everywhere. I mean, you go to some of the event, the parties, and they're being held in very public spaces. And there's one space that people go and sometimes you see others who are at the space for other reasons, leaving and passing through, and it really shows a beautiful coexistence of queer Jamaica and the rest of Jamaica, and that it can actually happen, and that there can be this peaceful coexistence and liberating space. And in a lot of ways, I think the party spaces have really contributed significantly to the movement because it radically transforms communities and um, occupies space in a very cool and interesting way, which I think as advocates we have to continue to pay attention to and recognize 
maximize the utility of those spaces. In the UK, we have a really strong Caribbean community. So my grandparents are from the Caribbean. You know, lots and lots of people came over in the 60s. Um, and so at the moment, it's sort of like the, the grandchildren of those Caribbean grandparents who were like resisting against their conservative views of their parents um, and often homophobic views and as I mentioned you know there are a lot of these spaces coming up now places like Babes, Pussy Palace where queer people of colour are coming together and letting loose. I was wondering if there's much kind of dialogue between the scene in Jamaica and the sort of diaspora in the UK or elsewhere whether you've been to any of these nights or heard of them um, and whether there's a kind of an opportunity for like collaboration and conversation across borders. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that we want to do is to begin to strengthen that relationship that we have with members of the Jamaican diaspora, um, particularly here in the UK where we've not had that strong relationship because we feel that through Pride, for example, people can come home and come home to celebrate with Pride and to revisit those spaces that they would have fallen out of love with or that they've never been able to experience. So, for example, last week we were in Manchester and we met with two people and they are of, of Caribbean heritage but they've never been to Jamaica and really want to be, come to Jamaica and never realised that there is actually a pride celebration and that they could actually come for something like that to begin to experience what their grandparents or great-grandparents had and knew about and talk about and really experience it in a very queer way and I think as we go forward that's one of the things that we need to continue to do I mean we have Glenroy here for example who will have at different um, spaces to continue to do that kind of engagement for us here so that we can build relationships and strengthen them and um, you know have all these wonderful spaces for people to really um, contribute to the movement but also meet and experience Jamaica in a very different way. Thanks to everyone at JFLAG for sharing their thoughts with us. Since the interview was recorded, their office Rainbow House was damaged in a fire. Our thoughts go out to the whole team and there's a GoFundMe link to help them rebuild their office in the episode description of this podcast on the RA site. Thanks to all our contributors on this month's edition of The Hour and thank you for listening. We're back next month with more documentaries, interviews and discussion.